Almost two decades ago, I read in a book by a gentleman that was recently deplatformed from YouTube, a famous conspiracy researcher about MK Ultra. And reading these details, I said to myself, our governments cannot possibly do that kind of stuff on their citizens. And I dismissed it. And over the years, as more and more information has come about, Everything points to this as actually happening. And then when finally Stephen's book came out, Poisoner in Chief, and I watched his videos, and he just lays it all out meticulously, really focusing on the prime mover in the MK Ultra experiments. If you've not heard what Stephen's got to say yet, it is absolutely going to blow your mind. So thank you very much for coming on, Stephen. Do you just want to tell the viewers who you are? I'm Stephen Kinzer. I'm a longtime foreign correspondent for various newspapers, including the New York Times. I'm now a recovered journalist, and uh, I teach international relations and uh, spend my odd hours churning out books like Poisoner in Chief. <laughs> and who was the person that you focused on in Poisoner in Chief? So the subtitle of that book, it's, the full title is Poisoner-in-Chief Sidney Gottlieb and the CIA Search for Mind Control. I can tell you a little story that uh, while I was researching this book, I was curious always to find out what Gottlieb looked like. He was totally invisible while he was at the CIA. No, no photographs of him ever appeared and nobody ever knew his name. So uh, while I was researching the book, I was also working with the CIA to try to find out different pieces of information. Much of it I didn't get, but at one point the CIA agreed to release a photograph to me. Uh, the first time anybody had ever seen a picture of what Sidney Gottlieb looked like uh, while he worked for the CIA. So I was very excited about this, and I called my publisher and said, I got great news. Uh, we have a picture for the cover of the book. I've got an actual photo of Gottlieb, and he was very excited too. But then after about two hours, I got an email from him and he said, you know, we've talked about this in here, we've changed our mind. We don't want to use that photo on the cover. And the reason is nobody's ever seen this guy. Nobody knows who he is. Nobody would recognize him. Essentially, my book is the biography of a person who wasn't there. I came to conclude in the course of my research that Sidney Gottlieb was probably the most powerful, unknown American of the 20th century, unless there was somebody else that we don't know about who also conducted grotesquely extreme experiments on human subjects across three continents and had what was in effect a license to kill from the U.S. government. So my book, Poisoner in Chief, is essentially an effort to piece together the clues and the few traces that are left and try to come up with some explanation of who Sidney Gottlieb was and what MKUltra was. And he did perform these grotesque experiments documented in your book. And for people watching this, if you want to get the book, in the description box below this video are links. And there's a link to the book there if you want to pick that up. And there's also links to Stephen's socials as well if you want to check out what he's doing. So these grotesque experiments haunted Gottlieb until his dying day. And what kind of a guy was he in general before he embarked upon this CIA operation? That's one of the most fascinating aspects of this story. So Sidney Gottlieb, by day, in his job, as chief chemist of the CIA and director of MKUltra, conducted the most intense and extreme experiments on human beings that have ever been conducted by any official or agency of the US government. You might in extrapolate from that fact a certain kind of evil in his character. But actually, if you look at what he was doing outside of work, it's completely the opposite. So Sidney Gottlieb not just had his PhD in biochemistry, but he considered himself a deeply compassionate humanist. He was very different from the other federal bureaucrats in Washington in the 1950s. He lived in an eco cabin with no running water out in the woods. He grew his own vegetables. 
He got up before dawn to milk his goats. He studied Buddhism. He wrote poetry. He meditated. He truly believed that following the spiritual path of compassion was what all human beings should do in life. And yet, he was also the director of this penis program in which unknown numbers of people were experimented to death. So trying to piece this person back together has been one of the most challenging pieces of, of writing this biography. Did he have a chip on his shoulder because he wasn't brought in to fight in the war and he had a disability? I think those are two factors that might have played into it. Uh, Sidney Gottlieb had a limp and therefore was rejected for military service in World War II. I think this did leave him with a sense that he hadn't been able to do his part and he wanted to do something for his country. Um, in addition, uh, I do think that he was driven by a sense of patriotism. Uh, don't forget we were in the period of the height of the Cold War when Gottlieb came to work at the CIA. Uh, he would have bought into the narrative that the CIA was promoting and which was widely accepted in the United States. That narrative told Americans that we faced a heinous, murderous enemy that was liable to attack us at any moment and that if triumphant would destroy all possibility of meaningful life on earth forever. If you believe that, then almost any steps you take to defend yourself are justifiable. And I think he, he fell into this mindset that uh, we're now in such a terrible, unusual, exceptional situation, we have to put aside momentarily the ethics and the morality that normally guide our government. And I think this is one of the messages from Gottlieb and MK Ultra to the present day. We're being told that repeatedly in our own times. Of course, we would never do anything illegal or, or immoral or harm any innocent person, but there have to be certain moments when you put that uh, set of scruples aside and do things that are distasteful but must be done. Now we're told that that certain narrow moment extends forever. And I think it, it is a very dangerous calculation to think that uh, because of the moment, this situation that I'm in, I am now compelled to do horrible things, which actually I wouldn't do under other circumstances, but uh, my the call of patriotism leads me to believe it is justified. So how did those steps come about? Was this a pilot program or was there a history of experiments of this nature in the intelligence community of the US and overseas? During the Second World War and the period immediately after that, there was experimentation on drugs, but uh, it never reached the point of congealing, at least in the United States, into a coherent program. It wasn't until after the CIA was founded in 1947, that the United States began to develop an interest in the idea of mind control. The early leaders of the CIA, particularly Alan Dulles, who became the director for most of the 1950s, were fascinated, in fact, obsessed with the idea of mind control. They figured out that if it were somehow possible to seize control of someone's mind so you could make that person do things that normally they would never do and then afterwards would forget what they had done. This would be a spectacular breakthrough. If you could find this key, the reward would be nothing less than global mastery. I asked myself in the book, what made them think this was possible? Now, when MK Ultra finally ended 10 years later, even Sidney Gottlieb admitted there's no such thing as mind control. You, you cannot make a person who's deeply opposed to murder go out and commit a murder. So what made the CIA uh, directors and people like Gottlieb and Alan Dulles think that it was possible? I came up with two reasons. One has to do with a couple of specific incidents that the CIA misinterpreted. The first one came in the late 1940s in Hungary when the Roman Catholic prelate there, Cardinal Mincenti, was arrested by the communist authorities and after a few months in captivity was put on trial. In his trial, he confessed to crimes that he obviously hadn't committed. But what fascinated the people at the CIA even more 
was that he seemed to speak in a kind of a monotone. His eyes seemed glazed. It later turned out that he had been coerced in the same, um, with the same techniques that people have been using forever, extended isolation and beatings and repeated interrogations. But the CIA didn't see it that way. They thought, this guy's mind is being controlled by someone else that we're not seeing. And that means the communists have found the key to mind control. Therefore, it's urgent. It's a matter of national survival that we uh, try to launch a search to find that same key. The second thing that happened came after the end of the Korean War. A number of American prisoners of war were released. It turned out that many of them had signed statements criticizing acts, uh, aspects of life in the United States. Some confessed to committing war crimes, including dropping biological bombs on North Korea, which the US government has steadfastly denied it ever did. So what was the explanation? How could our strapping young men have written these things and said these things? The answer again in the CIA was, they must have somehow been brainwashed and their minds are being controlled by someone else. So misinterpreting those two episodes greatly contributed to the momentum at the CIA in the direction of trying to find some mythical mind control key. But I don't think those episodes are enough to explain why the misinterpretations of these episodes fell on such fertile ground. Why were the CIA officers so ready to believe this mind control explanation? I think that goes back to another factor, it's cultural. It's all those books and stories and movies over the years that use hypnotism and uh, the dropping of a pill into a drink as a plot device. It's irresistible for fiction writers. There are Edgar Allan Poe stories. There are Sherlock Holmes stories. There are movies like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, uh, Gaslight. Once you're immersed in all this, you lose sight, perhaps, of the fact that this is fiction. This has been made up by screenwriters and novelists and fantasists. But somehow, people who grew up in that era and then came to work at the CIA came to believe this stuff. And when they saw these two things happening, the trial of the Cardinal in uh, Hungary and the returning POWs, that just crystallized everything in their minds, led them to a completely wrong conclusion, which is that communist powers had somehow found a key to mind control and set them off in this intense search for that key so that the CIA would have a weapon itself. How would you define MKUltra? The fact that it had that name, Ultra, is an indication of the importance that the CIA gave to this program. And the diptych MK at the beginning uh, was used for CIA projects that were global in scope, that didn't have to do with a particular country. So just the name of it gives you an indication of uh, how seriously the CIA took it. Um, Sidney Gottlieb was brought into the CIA in 1951 after the CIA had already begun research into mind control under other names. There was something called a Project Bluebird, um, there was a Project Artichoke. These were the uh, predecessors of MK Ultra. So when Gottlieb came on board, um, he had a real scientist's perspective. And he first started out with two basic scientific frameworks. The first was, uh, how do you insert a new mind into someone's brain? The idea would have to be that before you could do that, you had to blast away the mind that was already in there. So the search for mind control had to begin with a search for a way to destroy a human mind and a human soul. That was what Gottlieb set out to do, and that was the basis for all these horrific experiments. The next thing that Gottlieb asked himself was, like a true scientist, what research already exists on this subject? Who's out there in the world that we could count on who already knows how to destroy a human mind and a human soul? Who has already experimented with extreme uses of drug combinations and other tortures? We were never able as Americans to do that, but there might be people out in the world who are advanced enough, who could tell us 
How many seconds does it take to kill a baby with sarin gas, for example? Uh, who were you going to find who knew all that stuff? Well, the CIA turned to the Nazi doctors who had worked in concentration camps and to their Japanese counterparts, who in some cases had carried out horrific uh, experiments on human beings, even worse than what was done in the concentration camps. So people who worked for the Nazi government in high positions in biological warfare and medicine, along with their Japanese counterparts, were hired by the CIA. In one case, the chief of biological warfare for the Nazi Third Reich, Dr. Kurt Blume, was put on trial at Nuremberg, and the American government quietly got to the judges, who were American military officers, and essentially gave them the message, we actually don't want to hang this guy. We want to hire him. So MKUltra was built on the basis of experiments that were carried out in Nazi concentration camps and their Japanese analogs. While I was researching this book, um, I discovered what I think may have been the first CIA secret prison. It's in a lovely chateau in Germany outside of Frankfurt. Um, and the guy who owns it now was a young German businessman, and he's converted it into pleasant condos, took me into the basement, and he showed me his storage rooms. He told me, these are the cells where the CIA doctors and their Nazi counterparts conducted these horrific and often fatal experiments that were based on the experiments that these Nazi doctors had conducted just down the road only a few years earlier. And the guy also told me, when I bought this house, people who were older and lived in the neighborhood came to me to talk about it. Everybody knows what happened here. It's known as the CIA torture house. And they told me that the people that were killed in these MK Ultra experiments in this house were buried in forests in this area in places that are now covered over with apartment blocks and shopping malls. So the legacy of those experiments is still very much alive. And it was all aimed at trying to find a way to destroy a human being. What combinations of drugs, hypnosis, sensory deprivation, and all kinds of other techniques could you use to destroy a human mind? That was Gottlieb's relentless search year after year during the 1950s. Back at the CIA, I think, his superiors all understood that he was carrying out experiments that were bloody, that were horrific, that probably resulted in deaths. But rather than do what you or I might have done if we supervised someone like that, which would be to be sure you supervise them closely, they did the opposite. They didn't want to hear anything about it. They believed that whatever he was doing was probably necessary. And it was an obedience to not only a CIA culture, but I think a culture of all secret services Sometimes ignorance is an asset. You don't want to know everything. As a result, Gottlieb was allowed to go out and do whatever he wanted. And I think there was also one other reason why the CIA was happy to have him. Most of the early CIA officials came from the same upper social class, like many of the early British Secret Service agents. They were all products of the silver spoon aristocracy, and they knew each other from private clubs and schools and the same investment banks and law firms, but Gottlieb wasn't like that. He was Jewish, he walked with a limp, he stuttered, and I think this gave some of those wasps at the top of the CIA the idea that if this ever comes out and it, we uh, become uh, implicated in these crimes that Gottlieb is now committing, we can say, oh, we had no idea what he was doing and we'll dump it all on him, that won't bother us because he doesn't come from our class and we can say it was all the fault of a crazy guy. And indeed, that is what happened in the 1970s when the beginnings of the truth about MKUltra started to come out. The then director of the CIA, uh, Richard, uh, William Colby, uh, told relatives of one of the victims, there were problems of control. Some of our people were out of control in those days. So it was the perfect way of absolving the CIA and the U.S. government from any institutional responsibility for this really extreme and horrific program. Yeah, just like Barry Seal was a rogue drug trafficker. So these Nazis then, 
were they recruited and put under a kind of house arrest while they worked for the CIA, or were they just living like normal citizens? Uh, I would say neither one. They were living better than normal citizens. They were highly respected figures. They were people to whom uh, the CIA officers came for advice. It's really a bizarre situation, which, which you can note from reading some of the protocols that have survived. Uh, they want to know, that is the CIA officers want to know from these Nazis, what kinds of drugs did you inject into concentration camp inmates at Dachau? Let's see your records. How did they react to different kinds of drugs and different kinds of poisons? Um, how is it that you uh, carried out vivisections of living human beings to watch their organs change as you uh, injected deadly drugs into their veins. We want to know how that happened. And this was carried out in a very scientific or pseudo-scientific environment. So uh, the Nazi doctors, some of whom actually came to the United States and others of whom worked at CIA and the military uh, bases in, uh, in Europe, uh, were treated with complete respect. And, and actually, one of the strangest aspects of this is Gottlieb himself. As I mentioned, Gottlieb was Jewish. His parents had emigrated from Central Europe at the beginning of the 20th century. If they had not done that, if they'd stayed in Europe, quite possibly the family would have been scooped up in one of those Nazi roundups. The family would have been sent to a concentration camp. And who knows, young Sidney could have become the victim of one of those grotesque concentration camp experiments. But in the event, he came to the United States and he didn't seem to have the slightest problem working shoulder to shoulder with the Nazi doctors who carried out those very experiments. So you said that some of the experiments proved fatal. Do you know that the methods that they were employing that caused the fatalities? We don't have any specific case histories because Gottlieb and his patron, Richard Helms, who became the director of the CIA, were careful to destroy all the crates of records of MKUltra. Uh, nonetheless, we have enough indications of what happened to be able to extrapolate a, an idea of what kinds of experiments went on, particularly in places like, for example, this safe house outside of Frankfurt. So they might lock a person Oh, keep going. You're okay. You're okay. Keep going. Okay. All right. Let me, let me just pick it up. For example, they might lock a person into a small coffin-like box. They would then uh, inject him with large amounts of stimulants. So he'd become hyperactive. Then they would inject him immediately with overdoses of depressants so that he would go into a coma while he was in the transition state between hyperactivity and coma, they would give him intense electroshocks to see if all of this combination would destroy a person. And in many cases, uh, the intensity of the techniques they use caused people to die. We don't know how many there were. Uh, the German magazine Der Spiegel carried out an investigation a few years ago when the existence of this house became known. And all they could come up with was the phrase, uh, there were deaths, but the number is unknown. So uh, there's never any sense that Gottlieb was concerned or worried about this. In fact, he had the ability, he had the power to go to a foreign country like Germany or say the Philippines or Japan or Korea and requisition from American military police, human beings, prisoners. And those people would become what were known as expendables. The expendables were people who could become subjects of experiments, and if they were killed, or if they died under the experiment, nobody would know, or nobody was connected to them. So they could be killed without uh, any repercussions. Uh, just the fact that he was going around the world asking for a half a dozen expendables here and another dozen over there uh, showed, gives some indication of the extent of his program. One uh, nice memo I found had to do with uh, a visit that he had to the Philippines, where there's a memo from one of his aides to the local uh, CIA station saying, uh, we need six people uh, to, uh, to be turned over to us, six of your prisoners. Uh, in this case, 
uh, we, there will not be a disposal problem. What that means is you're not going to have to worry about what to do with the bodies afterwards. So that suggests that in other cases, there was a disposal problem, and they had uh, disposal protocols, what to do with the dead bodies afterward. So with little clues like this, you can begin to piece together this very complex story. So as well as the disposables, did they experiment on the public at large? Yes, in a very different way. So i give you one example. Uh, Gottlieb became completely fascinated with LSD. He was really the first LSD maven. LSD had only been invented in the 1940s, and uh, Gottlieb was fascinated with the idea that it could have such powerful effects uh, in such small doses, and it was colorless and it was odorless. He and some of the people working with him truly believed that it might be, as one of the chemists put it, the key that might unlock the universe. In other words, the key to mind control. So in 1953, Sidney Gottlieb persuaded the CIA to buy the entire world supply of LSD, which the CIA did. That LSD came under Gottlieb's control. So he owned all of the LSD in the world for a period in the early 1950s. And he used it for two kinds of experiments. Uh, some of them were quite brutal and horrific like the ones I just described that took place outside the United States. He also used LSD on uh, people inside the United States in equally uh, coercive experiments. For example, I found one experiment that took place at the federal prison in Lexington, Kentucky. Godly loved to use prisoners because, of course, they couldn't protest and they were always eager for the approval of the, the warden and the prison doctor. So in this experiment, seven African-American inmates were isolated and given triple doses of LSD every day for 77 days. This was part of Gottlieb's effort to figure out if you could destroy a human mind with that kind of an overdose. And of course, the answer is yes. Um, we don't know the names of those people. It's so frustrating. I, I sometimes wonder, did they die without ever knowing what had happened to them? So that kind of experiment uh, that sort of experiment was one part of what Gottlieb did with LSD. But you asked about the public. Gottlieb also wanted to know how ordinary people would respond to LSD in a clinical setting. So since the CIA doesn't have clinics, Gottlieb set up a bogus medical foundation. And through this foundation, he contacted hospitals and clinics and universities around the United States and told them quite explicitly what he wanted. He said, we have this new psychoactive drug, it's called LSD. We want you to experiment with it. We'd like to send it to you, and then you would advertise for volunteers, and you would explain exactly what's gonna happen, and they would come in, and you would pay them, and we'll pay you for doing this, and all you have to do is write up reports about how they respond. So, who were among the first volunteers? Number one was Ken Kesey who went on to write that great counterculture Bible, The uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Another one was Allen Ginsberg, the radical poet. Another one was Robert Hunter, who wrote the lyrics for many of the Grateful Dead songs. These guys loved LSD. They told all their friends to volunteer, and they began stealing the LSD to bring it home and turn on all their friends. So it was through Godly and through the CIA that LSD leaked into the general population. And of course, the irony is that the drug that Gottlieb thought would give the CIA the power to control people's minds and conquer the world wound up fueling a youth rebellion that was dedicated to destroying everything the CIA stands for. <laughs> so there's a character in this story who was working with Gottlieb and his conscience started to get the better of him and he ended up dead. Could you tell the viewers that story, please? There are many mysteries in MKUltra. This might be one of the most fascinating because many of those other mysteries are so undocumented. This one is quite well documented. So you're absolutely right. Uh, this, the circle of chemists that worked on MKUltra was very small. And MKUltra certainly was one of the most highly guarded secrets in the history of the United States. A very few people, even at the CIA, 
knew what was going on. It was widely understood that if any information about MKUltra were to become public, it would be devastating not only for the CIA, but for the United States. So this is why there were so many panic buttons pushed when in 1953, one of these chemists began to have second thoughts about what he was doing. This was a guy named Frank Olson, whose particular job was aerosolizing poisons. That was a word I learned while uh, researching this book. So turning poisons into sprays, that was his specialty. Uh, in 1953, in the summer, Frank Olson did something that CIA chemists and Gottlieb regularly did, which was to travel abroad and watch or supervise experiments in which people were fed various poisons. So uh, this chemist, uh, Frank Olson, went to Europe and apparently watched people being tormented and apparently killed uh, through the use of aerosol poisons that he himself, Olson, had devised. Suddenly something broke in him. He didn't want to do this anymore. And he told this to his colleagues, including at the CIA. He said he wanted not only to quit MKUltra, but he wanted to quit the CIA. And we now know that he even said to one of his friends, do you know a good journalist? So this would have been something earth-shaking within the tiny group that knew what MKUltra was and the higher echelons of the CIA. Uh, in uh, Over Thanksgiving weekend in November of 1953, uh, Frank Olson went with a couple of other CIA officers to New York and uh, on at about, two, at about two o'clock in the morning, one night towards the end of November, he went out the 13th floor window of a hotel right across from Penn Station in New York City, plunging to his death. This was immediately reported as the suicide of an army scientist. Well, he was not an army scientist. He was a CIA scientist. And whether it was a suicide has now come under a great question. Uh, it now seems that uh, the facts point to him being helped out that window. And when you look at how high the stakes were for the CIA, you can almost understand why the CIA would think this guy is too much of a risk. This program is too vital to national security. Uh, he's got to go out the window. Do you think that the experiments that were performed on the Unabomber at Harvard had any link with the work of Gottlieb? That is a very interesting question. Uh, the Unabomber, uh, who killed John Lennon? What about Sirhan? Sirhan, was he somehow hypnotized or controlled? I think these are interesting questions, but I don't deal in those kind of questions. My books are all only about what really happened. The section of all of my books, of which I'm the proudest, is the footnotes. So everything there is real. I have a line at the end of my book in the afterword, which might be one of my favorite lines in the book. It says, everything in this book is true, but not everything that's true is in this book. I'm painfully aware that I have only discovered a piece of what MKUltra was and what Sidney Gottlieb did. But let me tell you, two years of immersing myself in this has almost caused a psychological trauma for me. I was essentially locked up in a room for two years with Sidney Gottlieb, learning about everything that he did. And uh, although it might have been possible for him to repress the horrors of this while he was doing it, it was a very difficult project to go through as a writer, I can tell you. What was the fate of Sidney Gottlieb? So Gottlieb brought MKUltra to a, an end towards the end of the 50s and early 1960s. It didn't end on a certain day, but it faded away. And Gottlieb himself wrote memos essentially saying uh, it didn't work out. We now find out you, you can't do this. So essentially all of that suffering and death and pain, the shattered lives that he left behind, uh, were to no end. It never produced anything. Then Gottlieb, who was still the chief chemist of the CIA, was given another assignment starting around 1960. He became the poisoner-in-chief. That's where I get the name of my book. So he was called upon to make all the poisons that the CIA wanted to use to kill Fidel Castro 
<laughs> He's the one who made the poison packet that was supposed to be used to kill Patrice Lumumba, the uh, prime minister of the Congo. In fact, Gottlieb personally brought that poison from Washington to the Congo and handed it off to the CIA station chief there. Um, so he became the poison maker. And then later on in his career, he became the head of the technical services staff. That's a high position at the CIA. Uh, and the technical services staff is the organization that makes all the tools and the, the gizmos and the toys that spies use. If you remember the James Bond books and movies, there was that guy named Q who was in charge of all the devices. That, that was Gottlieb for the CIA during the late 60s and early 70s. In 1974, as a spin-off result of the Watergate scandal, uh, President Nixon fired Richard Helms, the head of the CIA. Helms had been Gottlieb's protector for 20 years and knew everything. As the two of them were on their way out, since it was clear Gottlieb couldn't survive at the CIA without Helms' protection, they met and made a fateful decision. The two of them decided we have to destroy all the records of what we've done because it could be misunderstood. So uh, Gottlieb personally went out to the CIA Records Center in Virginia and supervised the destruction of seven crates of MK Ultra documents. And in the protocol that the archivist kept, he mentions seven crates of documents were destroyed over my stated objections. The archivist being fully aware that in the United States, destruction of federal property is a felony. Uh, nonetheless, that felony was carried out. And then a couple of years later, uh, Gottlieb was summoned to uh, answer questions for investigators who were working for a Senate committee looking into the CIA. But they weren't interested in MKUltra because they really didn't know what it was. They wanted to question Gottlieb about his involvement in assassination plots. But in those plots, Gottlieb was essentially no more than a pharmacist. He was ordered to compound poisons, and, and he did it. But MKUltra was different. That came completely out of his own mind. It never would have reached those bizarre extremes without him, without what he did. The senators had no idea of this. Most of what's in my book was unknown at that time. So Gottlieb uh, began to go back into the spiritual life that he thought always really defined him. Um, he went back into Virginia to live in a, a rural area. He got a graduate degree in speech therapy so he could tutor young kids who stuttered as he did. He worked in the hospice. He was a community activist. Um, he was known as a kind of a proto-hippie. Um, he participated in a Buddhist study group. But people who knew him at the end of his life in the 1990s all agree that he was clearly haunted. Some big thing was hanging over him all the time. His rabbi at that time said uh, she tried to get him to talk about it, but he absolutely shut down. Uh, I talked to Seymour Hirsch, the journalist who went out to visit him during this period, and, and Hirsch told me he was a destroyed man. He was racked by guilt. If he had been Catholic, he would have gone to live in a monastery. Now, this was not only the result of perhaps a, a delayed attack of conscience. It had another basis. Uh, as details about MKUltra slowly began to filter into public consciousness, people began to realize that they had been victims. And several of them began launching lawsuits against Gottlieb, among others, as well as against the CIA. One of these lawsuits was just about to come to trial at the beginning of 1999. For the first time, Gottlieb was a named defendant in an MKUltra case, which you have to come and testify under oath, not just about this case, but about MKUltra in general. At the same time, the investigation into Frank Olson's death was percolating again, and the fingers were pointing at Gottlieb. So at the beginning of 1999, just as, these, as the trial was about to begin, Gottlieb died. Uh, now, I went back to talk to the lawyer who had been pursuing that case for 20 years and was just about to get Gottlieb into court. And he told me, I'm sure Gottlieb committed suicide. He fell on his sword 
because he realized he could be the instrument by which all of this could become public. And his loyalty to the CIA was such that he didn't want to do that. And later I talked to the son of Frank Olson, the chemist who went out the window, and he also agreed. He said for sure, I believe uh, Gottlieb killed himself. It was the right moment. Uh, we'll never know the truth, but uh, cause of death was never announced. Uh, there was, and we don't know if there was any burial. Uh, so Gottlieb faded away. And then after he died, his widow called the four children together, then young adults, and told them they had to promise never to speak about their father to anyone. And uh, I can tell you, because of my efforts to try to reach them while I was writing this book, that they've maintained uh, this pledge. Uh, we don't know too much about the inner life of Gottlieb, but uh, in my book, I tried to probe around to friends of the family, people that had known him, to try to get a fuller picture of this hugely complex figure who was one of the most prolific torturers of his generation, while also being one of the most deeply spiritual and compassionate humanists. While researching this book, what surprised you the most? My first great shock was the fact that the CIA carried out one of its most important projects in collaboration with people who had carried out horrific experiments in concentration camps, which the United States was publicly denouncing. We adopted uh, the Nuremberg Code, the famous code that said uh, it's not allowed to experiment on human beings without their informed consent. But the CIA completely ignored all of that. So the, the involvement of Nazis and their Japanese counterparts was very uh, shocking to me. Uh, I was also amazed at the way he was allowed to carry out all of these experiments without having to tell anybody. And in fact, as I said earlier, with the stricture that he shouldn't tell anyone. Just go out and do whatever you want to do. How could they have known that these experiments were so bloody and so awful but never wanted to know details? And another thing that surprised me is something I also referred to earlier. How did these supposedly thoughtful and intelligent and mature CIA officers come up with this idea that yes, it was possible to turn masses of people into automatons. You could drop a gas on a population and suddenly the soldiers would think that their weapons were hydrangeas and that the enemy was actually blood relatives that they should embrace. What made them think that you could put a, a pill in somebody's drink and totally transform them? I understand why this would be very appealing for fiction writers and screenwriters. But they allowed their fears and their extreme emotions to take control of them and suppress the rational side of their uh, analytical faculties. And I think that that is something that's still going on. Groupthink uh, and this idea uh, of trying to look for all the evidence that supports what you want to believe and reject everything that you don't want to hear is very much a part of MKUltra. There were psychologists in the United States, like the Menninger brothers, who ran the most prestigious psychological clinic in the United States during that time, who wrote to the CIA in response to requests and queries and said, don't do this. This is not going to work. This is a fantasy. But since that didn't fit in to the CIA's mindset and what it wanted to hear, the CIA officers fell into something uh, that you call confirmation bias. You only want to listen to what you already believe. And uh, that, to me, helps explain so much not only of the Cold War, but of the conflicts we're involved in right now. Yeah, I came across the yeah, relationships with the Nazis. I wrote a chapter about Klaus Barbie in one of my books, and uh, that really just blew my mind. So with advancements in... We, we all know that Joseph Mengele was one of the most famous Nazi torturers and that he fled right after the war and disappeared. After I finished writing this book, I began to think about Mengele. And I thought, you know, maybe he made a mistake. He made a miscalculation. He thought he would have been hanged. He probably would have been hired by the CIA. But he didn't realize that and nobody could have believed that at the time. 
but uh, people who carried out uh, uh, experiments and were in charge of projects comparable to Mengele's did come to work for the CIA. So maybe Mengele could have found a good little slot there. Are you concerned that your perspective about the CIA's involvement in these experiments might put you on the radar? I don't think so, uh, particularly for uh, a reason that I, I alluded to earlier. Uh, at the CIA, and I've now dealt with enough CIA officers to know this, um, MKUltra is now uh, dismissed as a crazy thing that we never should have done. It was one guy who went off the rails. It doesn't have anything to do with us now. Godlieb is more or less forgotten. Um, near where I live, there's a retired gentleman who was formerly the director of the CIA. And when I ran into him at the coffee shop a couple of years ago, I said to him, you know, I'm writing a book about a CIA officer. He said, no kidding, who's that? And I said, Sidney Gottlieb. And he said, never heard of him. And I think he was telling the truth. So right now, the CIA's idea of Gottlieb and MKUltra is that was ancient history. We don't do anything like that anymore. So we're happy to have it investigated. And this leads me to the suspicion that maybe 50 years from now, there'll be another one of me and another one of you, and they will be discussing the discovery of horrific things that were going on in secret in the United States and other countries back in 2020. I tell you, when you research something like MKUltra, it's very difficult to believe that that's just something that happened then. Nothing like this could happen now. You are only, when you research MKUltra, a few clicks away from the wildest conspiracy theories, but the more you get into the reality of the program, the less wild many of those theories begin to seem. So are you speculating that with advancements in technology and chemistry, there could be way more sophisticated operations in progress right now? Absolutely. If you compare the technology and the knowledge that was available in the 1950s about the human mind to what's available now, it's like comparing the dinosaur age to the computer age. And there's no comparison at all. Now, we not only have huge advances in understanding of body chemistry and uh, psychopharmacology, but also the adv advances in artificial intelligence uh, and computer technology open up whole new avenues for the possibility of mind control. So Gottlieb may well have been right when he concluded about 60 years ago, mind control is impossible, you can't do it. But of course, he was only talking about the techniques and the knowledge that was available to him. So while that may have been true then, I have to wonder what uh, is the situation today. and. If you were to tell me there's nobody in the U.S. government who's seriously experimenting with electronic ways or psychopharmacological ways of controlling human minds, I'd be very skeptical. There has to be. And I uh, hope I live long enough to see volume two of Poisoner and Chief come out that will tell me some of the things that are happening now that nobody can see. Before we conclude this, then, I've just got one quick question. You raised the assassination attempts on Castro. And I, I read a book years ago, I can't recall the title, but the, there were some pretty colorful methods employed. They knew he was a scuba diver. They knew where he ate. Are you able to expand on the methods that the CIA employed? I am, and uh, this is one that's both horrific and chilling, but also uh, bizarre and almost comical. So to start with one that you mentioned, uh, it was known that Castro uh, liked scuba diving so somebody came up with the idea that uh, uh, an intermediary who Castro trusted should present him with a wetsuit. And this wetsuit would be poison. The wetsuit was actually made. And when the CIA wanted to create something like a poison wetsuit, that's not so easy. That's a complex project. Who would they turn to? Sidney Gottlieb. Uh, Gottlieb also came up with a packet of what they called L-pills. That's another phrase I learned while writing this book. L stands for lethal. So these would be poison pills that could be dropped into Castro's bouillon or tea. And actually some of these pills made their way into Cuba. Um, Gottlieb also devised a series of devices. For example, 
he had a fountain pen, uh, which, when uh, particularly pressed, uh, had a tiny, hyper-thin hypodermic needle. In that needle was poison. All you'd have to do is stick that needle into the back of Castro's thigh, uh, and he would die immediately. But he wouldn't even notice that he had been poisoned because the needle was so thin. This was a needle that the CIA had developed as a way to poison wine bottles through the cork without leaving any hole in the top of the cork. So Gottlieb was involved in carrying out all these projects that were assigned to him, various different ways to kill or incapacitate Fidel Castro. Uh, among the incapacitating ideas, one was, we're going to find the radio studio where Castro makes his radio addresses to the nation, and we're gonna spray LSD in the studio. Therefore, Castro will become crazy, and his rambling speech will lead people to lose confidence in him, and he'll fall from power. If you think that's crazy, how about this one? Somebody else at the CIA came up with the idea that Castro's entire charisma and his, all of his power came from his beard, and that if the beard were gone, people would just laugh at Castro, and he wouldn't be powerful. So they came up with this idea that they wanted to find a poison that would make his beard fall out. And sure enough, Gottlieb compounded something from thallium salt that would have this depilatory effect. And the idea was the next time Castro travels, he leaves his boots outside his hotel room to be shined, and we get to the hotel and we sprinkle this depilatory inside the shoes. Well, of course, Castro doesn't leave his shoes outside hotel rooms to be shined, and indeed, uh, the shoes were probably carefully controlled. So none of that came to uh, fruition, but uh, if you were to make a list of the most bizarre assassination plots the CIA has ever come up with, you'd find Gottlieb's name on almost every one of them. Well, that's a really colorful note to end this interview on, Stephen, and like I said to the viewer earlier, in the description box below this video is a link to Stephen's book, Get It Worldwide. And if people want to contact you, are you on Twitter, Facebook, any of the socials? Absolutely. Twitter is, I'm active on Twitter. I also have a Facebook page, so uh, I'm eager to hear from people. And let me tell you, since this book has come out, I've been hearing from various people with MKUltra experiences, some of them quite sh shattering. And I have to write them back and say, I. I I think you're probably telling the truth. I think you were an MK Ultra victim, but I hate to tell you, you're never going to know. Oh, dear. Well, at least um, you're helping people through the book as well. That's great. Thank you very much for your time, Stephen. Okay. It was great to be with you. Thanks. Cheers from London.